Seltzer Kings Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Oh, please, Gavin. No, you're like the second worst co-host I've ever had. You can't even be the best at being bad at something. Yes. The following podcast contains... Your use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you uh, got so drunk, Johnny asked if maybe you needed a little nap. <laughs> what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe. This episode number 434, Johnny Come Lately edition of the show, where we talk about the greatest talk show host in history, Jerry Springer. Sorry, no, no, uh, we mean Johnny Carson. It's part two of the Winter Series 2024 Late Night with Dave Bledsoe. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Rent a Sidekick, your one-stop shop for co-hosting. Yes, men. If you have a career in broadcasting, then you already know one of the true secrets to success is finding someone who laughs at your jokes and generally agrees with what you say just to make you look good by comparison. That's where Rent the Sidekick can help. We can match you with someone willing to play to your second banana to be your ride or die for all your hosting needs. Be it a national late night talk show or the crappiest podcast on Apple Music, Rent a Sidekick can find someone willing to do what it takes to make you seem smart and funny. If you're ready to launch your show, reach out to Rent a Sidekick before you record. Hey, mention producer Gavin at checkout and get 15% off your first Sidekick rental. Now, as you know, the San Diego Zoo is one of the finest zoos in the world, and We've had this young lady on the show very often the past, uh, I guess, seven or eight years. She's been appearing with About us. About nine years. Hmm? About nine years. Right, yeah. Several plus several will be about nine. You said seven or eight. No, I said, been... no, I didn't say seven or eight. I said several. Then you said seven or eight, and I said well, did it's I? nine. Yes. Nine, nine. Good, thank you. Yeah. Some of the animals, some of the animals you had as babies are now ten years old. That would be about right. Um, Remember the animals that did something funny on your tie? Yes. Those little lions, the little baby lions, were one year old. That's right. They are now treacherous and ferocious ten-year-old animals. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, Joan, uh, Joan Embry is here tonight. <laughs> and she's now 32. That's right. Uh, Joan is an, an animal a handler and a trainer. And uh, you, you really think you're fooling everybody, don't no, you? No, 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 no. Uh, and she I'm also... I'm just here to do my best to help you. I know that. And she does her three horse shows a day. Did you know that? At the Animal Park. Boy. What? What an exciting idea. <laughs> Would you like an army cot or something? Maybe just to kind of no. catch up on a little, no, 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 little no. nappy poo? Just might no, snap no, no, you right no. out of it. Okay. I love... 
I've mentioned before, I always wanted to be a radio DJ. Oh, here he goes again. When I was 10 or 11, my folks gave me an old cassette recorder. You know, the big square box with a shitty little microphone, weighed about 10 pounds and had a sound quality like a garbage truck crunching up scrap lumber. High fidelity music player. It was not. That did not stop me from producing my own little radio shows featuring your host Dave Bledsoe and my sidekick, my little sister. My sister, a fabulous human being. Great mom, mixes a mean cocktail, and is absolutely one of my favorite people in the entire world. I'm sensing a butt. She was simply the worst sidekick ever. She simply couldn't grasp the fundamental nature of the job, which is, of course, well, I need someone to make me look good. It is the sacred duty of the co-host to ensure the host of the show comes across as smart and funny, and frankly, she failed at this miserably. A difficult task. She simply refused to laugh at my jokes or tell the listening audience that I was... You are correct, sir! Indeed, she would grab the microphone out of my hand and tell our listening audience that not only was I wrong and not funny, but I was a big, dumb doo-doo head, and then tried to take over my show from me. This violates the sacred psychic compact, flouts hundreds of years of tradition. And this would inevitably lead to fights, screams, and tears because my little sister fought dirty and she fought mean. She was the only person in the world who knew exactly which buttons to push to make me lose my ship. And when we fought, she smacked those buttons like she was playing Galaga at the arcade. <laughs> Inevitably, this would bring my mother into the room, where she would break us apart and ask what was going on, and I would tearfully try to explain to her that my sister refused to play her part by being the right kind of sidekicks on my fake radio show. My mother would then stare in total incomprehension until she saw the tape recorder dutifully recording the entire incident and figured out that her only son was some kind of idiot because he was, uh... I was making radio shows for fun. She would then take away the tape recorder, rub her eyes tiredly, and tell us both to go outside for five to seven hours. To this very day, I blame both of them for keeping me from my dream of having a low-rated radio show in a small market town, where, which I would have been laid off from in the late 1990s consolidation of the radio market and the Clear Channel takeover. The reference here is very obscure. All of this because my sister was a terrible sidekick, and that is why she is not allowed in the studio with me to this very day. Because uh, I don't want you to hear her, her make me cry again. The reason I bring this up is that Ed McMahon would never do something like that to Johnny Carson. And that's who we're talking about this week. We talked last week about the creation of talk shows and The Tonight Show specifically. And while you don't need to listen to that show if you haven't already, but really... You're a daisy if you do. So this week we are focusing on the patron saint of late night. The man for whom all other late-night hosts from Letterman to the latest edition, Taylor Tomlinson, universally acknowledges the godfather of the genre. Carson. Bill Carson. No, I'm being informed it was actually Johnny, Johnny Carson. John William Carson, born October 23rd, 1925 in Corning, Iowa, to Ruth and Homer Lloyd Kit Carson, the second of three children. Johnny was an entertainer from early on, and he purchased a book on how to perform stage magic at the age of 12, and by the age 14, he was wearing a hand-sewn cape and appearing at the local Kalanis Club as the great Carsoni for three bucks a show. Well, that's showbiz. When he graduated high school, young Johnny stuck out his thumb and hitchhiked his way to Hollywood seeking fame and fortune. 
Unfortunately for Johnny, his dream would be a dream deferred, just like so many other young men of his generation. Over Macho Grande? No, I don't think I'll ever get over Macho Grande. Johnny joined the Navy and was commissioned an incident assigned to the battleship USS Pennsylvania, where he mostly boxed his way through his early years of service. He had a 10-0 record. He was sent for the invasion of Japan, but the war ended before his ship arrived. Carson said of his war record, according to Wikipedia, quote, the high point of his military career was performing a magic trick for United States Secretary of the Navy James V. Forrestal. In a conversation with Forrestal, the secretary asked Carson if he planned to stay in the Navy after war. In response, Carson said no, and he told him he wanted to be a magician. Forrestal then asked him to perform, and Carson responded with a card trick. Carson made the discovery that he, if he, that he could entertain and amuse someone as cranky and sophisticated as Forrestal, unquote. After the war, Johnny went to college, majoring in journalism and minoring in, I swear I'm not making this up, physics. A strange combination. His ambition was to be a comedy writer and was allowed to graduate early on the strength of his thesis, How to Write Comedy for Radio, in which Johnny taped bits from local radio shows and explained why they were funny. This is an actual excerpt of Johnny Carson's graduate thesis. Those radio stars are paid-up life members in good standing of millions of American homes. They can keep you home from bridge parties, movies, well, just about anything, just to listen to their programs. What's more important, they can get you to buy the sponsor's product, whether you need it or not. Few people probably realize the preparation that goes into Bob Hope's flip treatment of jokes, Fred Allen's dry and multisyllabic humor, the bungled attempts of speech of Archie of Duffy's Tavern, or the situations that Jack Benny finds himself. The comedy gag writer is truly a forgotten soul. But if you don't mind being forgotten, have a terrific sense of humor, and what's more important, can put it down on paper, the top comedians are waiting right now with check in hand. I had no idea such a thing was even possible. And, based on the strength of nine years of this podcast, I will be writing to Harvard and asking that they award me a PhD for my work on this show. You are scarily optimistic. Upon graduation, Carson landed his first job at W.O.W. AM 590. And quickly jumped from there into local television. On screen, Johnny would apply his college degree in comedy by doing little skits. Like uh, interviewing pigeons on top of the courthouse where they would comment on the political corruption they'd witnessed. Before long, Johnny had moved to Los Angeles and was featured on local television before guesting on national shows. It was the CBS broadcasting system that gave Carson his first national show. He did the rounds on hosting talk shows and game shows, and he was hosting ABC's show, Who Do You Trust?, when he met his... This is my hetero life mate. Ed McMahon. He guest hosted for Jack Parr on The Tonight Show and was extremely popular. So popular that when Parr retired... Carson was the heir apparent to take his chair in 1962. He took over the helm of The Tonight Show on NBC. From New York, The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. Johnny's guests tonight are Joan Crawford, Rudy Valley, Tony Bennett, Mel Brooks, the Phoenix Singers, Skitch Anderson with the NBC Orchestra, and me, I'm Ed McMahon.
hard, nigh on impossible, to explain Johnny Carson to you, the modern listener who did not live through the time. There's simply no comparison, even with the best of his successors, and they all openly admit they were a shadow of the man they all revered. Television itself is fundamentally different than it was even 30 years ago when Johnny left The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. Hell, no one called it The Tonight Show outside of TV listings. They just called it Carson. That's all you need to say. Johnny was a star, a comedy godfather, an American icon. Author Bill Zemi wrote for PBS's American Masters, quote, Patriarchal broadcast lion Walter Cronkite, a.k.a. the most trusted man in America, arguably a time-shared mantle owned in equal part by Carson, once summed up the long shadow legacy of the late-night stalwart as that of a, quote, cool kid from Nebraska with a cockeyed smile who became the most durable performer in the history of television, unquote. And I'm going to try and probably fail to explain why that is. First, there was Johnny himself. He possessed the generic good looks so essential to being successful on television at the time, even arguably today. Dark hair, warm brown eyes that crinkled when he laughed, which was a lot, and a broad smile with big white teeth. If you went into a lab to create the ideal talk show host from DNA, you'd come out with Johnny Carson. We've done it. We've really done it. Add to this his quick wit, self-assured comfort in his own skin and that little twinkle when he was riffing a joke or ten, and you can see the natural performer that was Carson. He possessed the ability to both command a room, an essential skill for a TV talk show host, but also to make his guests feel like they were just there to chat, getting them to relax, open up, and give a good goddamn show. He was also, simply by being there night after night through all the traumas of the time, to provide a sense of comfort, continuity to his viewers, and by extension, the entire US of A, both during the down and the boom times when he was on TV. You could rest a little easier knowing that you could turn on Carson at the end of the day and he would be there. You're being hyperbolic. If I am, it's only just a little. Going back to the PBS essay, quote, Carson was for certain the bump in the night to deliver hope and perspective. He opened, his opening monologues, Ever His Pride and Joy, navigated us through seven presidential administrations, rasping out the perfect pitch of populist incredulity, always with subtle precision. The Carson version of history as it occurred daily anchored mass sanity's funniest in the world gone perpetually mad. Also, like no one else in latter-day lifetime, he was the last face flickering onto the brain before so many billions of slumbers, thus launching the dreams of generations. Medical science no less immortalized him by naming in his honor a form of temporary one-eye blindness caused by burrowing the other eye into a pillow while not enough to sleep while watching TV. Carsonogenius monocular Nika Latila, fuck, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. Indeed, the great director Billy Wilder once gratefully proclaimed him the Valium and Nimbutal of a nation, unquote. Those were sleep drugs, all right? New Valium, but anyway. One last bit of nod slobbing. If you are a fan of comedy, which I am, you venerate Carson for making the careers of some of the greatest names in comedy. We might not have had comedians like George Carlin. Andy Kaufman, Jerry Seinfeld, Eddie Murphy, Jim Carrey, or Ellen DeGeneres, all of whom made their national debut on Carson. Other notable names were elevated by appearances on Carson. Names like Joan Rivers, Drew Carey, Roseanne Barr, Bill Maher, Steve Martin, Gary Shanley, Stephen Wright, and of course, David Letterman, and you know, that other guy. And you are Jay Leno. The pantheon of comedy gods for the back end of the 20th century all stood on Carson's stage and were introduced to America or America was reminded that they existed and that they were incredible all because they were on Carson. And this alone is enough reason for me 
to give his balls just a little tickle with the tongue. This is not to imply, infer, or insinuate that Johnny Carson was a great guy. He was kind of a dick. With great influence came an even greater ego, and Johnny's ego generated its own gravity well and sucked people into it. Performer Wayne Newton told Larry King on CNN, quote, Johnny Carson is a mean-spirited human being, and there are people that he has hurt that people will never know about, and for some reason, at some point, he decided to turn that kind of negative attention towards me, and I refuse to have it, unquote. This came after Newton had beaten Johnny Carson in a deal for a Las Vegas casino, and Johnny Carson used his position to heckle, harass, and berate Newton on The Tonight Show for years. Raymond Burr, who was indeed a man of girth, was a constant source of fat jokes for Carson's for years, to the point where the Ironside star actively hated Johnny Carson. You can testify from the wheelchair like that dude Ironside. Johnny even started shit with Mr. Fucking Rogers, to which I say Johnny had the balls to speak the truth about that. Dave! Dave, no! Gentlemen. Johnny did a sketch with him playing Rogers. By the way, boys and girls, there may be one or two of you out there who haven't yet joined the <laughs> Mr. Rogers Pal for Life Club. For only $12, you get a membership card and a certificate stating, somebody loves me. Remember, you can't be my pal until you've sent your $12 and have an official <laughs> membership card. Remember, if you don't send it, then nobody will ever love you, and your dog will die. Fred Rogers replied to the skit, as quoted in a 1983 New York Times piece, quote, I've told Johnny that I like humor as much as anybody. What concerns me is that takeoffs make me seem so wimpy. He doesn't communicate that Mr. Rogers is just somebody to be made fun of. Only people who take the time to see our work can begin to understand the depths of it, unquote. It's rumored that Fred came around to remonstrate with Carson, and he got his apology. Act like a bitch, get slapped like a bitch. But of course, I can't confirm this. It's just something that I heard. And for all he helped comedians, Carson demanded fealty from those comedians that he helped. The most famous story about this is, of course, Joan Rivers. It's not question that Johnny boosted Joan's career, but Joan had been on The Tonight Show in the Jack Parr era and had been doing comedy for decades before Johnny ever had her sit on the couch or behind the chair. Still, her turns as a guest host during Johnny's increasingly frequent vacations lifted her star, and she hoped that she would be given her own show and that Johnny Carson would have NBC give her one. To which Johnny said, Not gonna happen! So Joan said to Johnny, Look, I go to you. I stick up for you. You know, help me now. Fuck you, Joe I do it myself. And went and got her own goddamn show on Fox, competing directly with Johnny Carson. Look, this was never a threat. Her show lasted less than one season, but Carson shit-talked Rivers to Hollywood power brokers and did everything in his power to make sure Rivers didn't get another shot because... Johnny's attitude was simple and direct. Hey, yo, lesson here, baby. You come at the king, you best not miss. And the two who had been genuine friends for decades never spoke again. 
Rivers was the only guest host to be trashed by Carson, but she was the one he hurt the worst. And this is symbolic of another facet of Carson's personality that is uh, less than laudable. Woman problems? To begin with, Johnny Carson was a drunk. Not unlike yourself. Hey, look, I normally admire that in a person, but Johnny was more like a... Conceited, stubborn, full-blown alcoholic. Okay, I can see where you... Never mind. But unlike Johnny, my drinking doesn't hurt anyone besides me. Ooh, what about Gavin? Oh, fuck him. Agent to the star Irving Lazar told the New Yorker in 1978, quote, he doesn't drink now. I turned to find Lazar behind me, also peeking at the man outside. He continues, but I remember Johnny when he was a blackout drunk. That was before The Tonight Show moved to New York to Los Angeles in 72. A couple of drinks was all it took. He could get very hostile. Like a lot of people in our business, Lazar goes on, he's a mixture of extreme ego and extreme cowardice, unquote. Let's not be catty bitches. Hmm? But Johnny's drinking is borne out in numerous other articles and interviews. Johnny got a DUI. In 1982, in Hollywood. Do you have any idea how drunk you would have to be to be a Carson-level celebrity and get an actual DUI in Hollywood in 1982? I mean, if he had killed someone, sure, I could see it. But nothing I could find out implied that he, like, ran over a truckload of old ladies or nuns or something. So... I'm, yeah, could he even have that covered up? Certainly, he's Johnny Carson. You could have that covered up. But I don't think that's what happened. I just think that you probably was so shit-faced. He was driving down the middle of fucking La Cienega Boulevard just being an asshole to the point that they couldn't ignore it. But Johnny, being Johnny, he got a $600 fine, three years probation, and a restricted license. So, you know, it wasn't exactly like he suffered from it. Also... Somebody drove him to work every goddamn day. Come on, he had a fucking limo. Carson's marital woes were a running joke for Johnny. Not so much for his family. His first wife, Jody, he divorced in 1963 due to cheating. Carson said it was mutual, but who knows? They had three children from that marriage, and Johnny was an even worse father than he was a husband. His middle child, Rick, from that his first marriage, was a troubled kid, and when he was committed to a mental institution for treatment, Johnny refused to visit his child, saying at the time he didn't want the limelight to interfere with his treatment, but it was very quietly said at the time that he didn't want his adoring public to associate him with his own son and a mental hospital. Rick Carson would die in a traffic accident in 1991, shortly after Carson announced his retirement from The Tonight Show, and the two had not spoken in years when it happened. And then, and only then, did Johnny Carson speak of his love and affection for his son. Daylight don't show enough. Johnny's first wife was shit out of luck when it came to the tons of money Johnny made. But his second wife, who he had been having an affair with before his first divorce by the name of Joanne, did quite a bit better. After a hard fart divorce that was fodder for Johnny on the show, he she received her fair share of being his wife during his rise to prominence and the enmity of Johnny forever after. On the heels of divorce number two, Carson announced his future divorce number three, this time to a woman named to a woman named Joanna. At least he's consistent. That marriage ended 10 years and $20 million later when Joanna got a nice divorce set, settlement. And when he announced he, he was marrying Alexa in 1987, he finally broke his streak. Well, the fourth one stayed up. Carson knew he was an utter shit to his family. 
he told his longtime lawyer, Harry Henry Bushkin, who wrote a tell-all book conveniently after Carson died, as quoted in a New York Post article, quote, I'm a shit. I have three kids with my first wife, and I don't see any of them, Carson told his new lawyer, Henry Bushkin, one night in 1970 at Jilly's Saloon on 52nd Street and 8th Avenue while blasted on Tanqueray and Tonics, adding, I can't get smoking, I get drunk every night, and I chase pussy that I can get. Make sure you understand this, unquote. There were lots of rumors that Johnny liked the ladies. I mean, not just to marry and divorce and lose a lot of money to, but that he sexually harassed and maybe sexually assaulted both his staff and his guest. Sally Field, yes, that Sally Field, said being around Johnny Carson was like being with an octopus and she was a reluctant little guppy. Sources are hard to find even today, and I pulled that quote from a page six article in which Fields said that she did date Carson, but faked a mental breakdown to get out of going out with him more than a couple of times because she wasn't into it. Which, I mean, given their age difference, sure, I can... uh, I can see it. Finding hard sources on Carson's peccadillos is not easy for one simple reason. Again... Hey, yo, lesson here, babe. You come at the king, you best not miss. Carson was the king of Hollywood for nearly three decades. He had money, fame, and oh, so many lawyers. He also had an array of loyal followers on all levels of show business that would do anything to protect Johnny, his reputation, and by extension, their place in Hollywood hierarchy. This is not unique to Johnny. It isn't unusual for Hollywood. Fuck, it's how Hollywood worked and to a lesser extent still works today. But with Johnny, he was always couched in this concept of him being, a, in reality, a deeply private man. He told 60 Minutes in an interview shortly before his death, quote, I like to keep certain things private, said Carson. I probably do put up a barrier until I get to know people. I think I'm probably reluctant to do it. I find it difficult to do it. And Carson said, I'm reluctant to do it with people I don't know well. If I know somebody well, I can sit around, unquote. To which I'm sure that was true because privacy, particularly the privacy that comes from, that was shielding you from the prying eyes of accountability is also very, very Hollywood. And again, what do I know? These are just rumors. These are things that I read and heard. Don't sue me, Johnny Carson Estate, because everything that I've said here is predicated with a big giant Allegedly, it was May 22nd, 1991, that after years of speculation, Johnny Carson officially announced that he was giving up the chair on The Tonight Show. There was an official announcement, and then there was Johnny's appearance on the show of the man most assumed would be his successor. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Entertainment Tonight. I'm John Tesh. And I'm Mary Hart. After years of speculation, rumors, cocktail party conversations, and just plain old gossip, Johnny Carson has finally made it official. He is not going to stay on television forever. Johnny Carson made a surprise visit to Late Night with David Letterman last night. He confirmed rumors that next year would be his last year as host of The Tonight Show. It is coming to an end, you know, next year. I, I, I've always wanted to be a shepherd. <laughs> Carson had made a more serious statement of his intent to leave earlier in the day at the NBC television station affiliates meeting. He said that his last broadcast will be May 22, 1992. NBC Entertainment President Warren Littlefield says he was not surprised by the announcement. And one year later, Johnny would get to walk off stage 
in a glorious homage to his career and that all he had done by television, surrounded by the people that he had lifted up that he hadn't betrayed because they weren't sufficiently loyal to him. No matter what, it was a moment in comedy and Hollywood history. And then there was the reality of what was going on. Quoting from a 1992 Baltimore Sun article, quote, his overall ratings were bad and getting worse. Young women, the viewers advertisers most wanted to attract, downright hated him. College students groaned when you said his name. If he hadn't announced his retirement a year ago himself, NBC might have had to step in and do it for him. The affiliates wanted Johnny Carson out that badly. He's performed horribly for us, said Arnold J. Kleiner, general manager of WMAR Channel 2, the NBC affiliate in Baltimore. The guy was a dog for us. The show was a dog for us, unquote. To the facts of the case, and they are undisputed. By the early 90s, cable had become the dominant way Americans watched television. Long gone were the only three choices, and television had become a 24-hour endeavor. The lucrative spot of being the king of late night... A spot in which Carson had once represented 17% of NBC's total profits in the 1970s. Yeah, that shit was gone. People weren't falling asleep to Carson anymore because Carson's demographic was going to bed much, much earlier. Fucking boomers. To be fair, even the boomers were moving on. That The coveted late night demographic the young people, this new generation, they called them a generation X, had way more options than Carson. Hey, look, we liked Letterman. We'd lock, we liked him a lot. We'd tune into Letterman, but we didn't tune in to watch Carson before Letterman. I think we had softcore porn to watch on Skinamax. You made a Skinamax flick. We'd flip over to watch Letterman's monologue and then leave after the top 10 list. I know, I was there. The ratings were on the wall for Carson. So better he should step aside with his dignity and legacy intact than try to hang on in the face of increasing competition that he couldn't bully off the market like he did Joan Rivers. And uh, I think this deserves some mention because the Carson show was overwhelmingly white. Caucasians, am I right? More from the Sun, quote, If Carson is the barometer of the national mood, it didn't seem to speak to or for African-Americans. It's no accident that our CDO Hall show was such a successful counter-programming against Carson and that it coincided with the rise of a multicultural sensibility. Lawrence E. Mintz, Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland College Park and an editor of the Journal of International Humor, compares Carson favorably with the likes of Will Rogers, but he says it's impossible to talk about Carson speaking for all Americans. The college students I teach, for example, if you mention Carson, they groan. But Mintz also concedes that the tributes and praise might be so lavish in celebrating Carson, the other comedians also celebrate themselves by treating his resignation as if, they're, if, if it were Thurgood Marshall leaving the Supreme Court. They elevate the profession of TV comedian, comedian and talk show host from entertainer to, well, barometer of the national mood. But if women... African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and Hispanics, and all the others were excluded. What national mood are we talking about? Unquote. By the end of Johnny's run, he had become, in reality, the same as the D-list guest he fills spots with when he couldn't book someone bigger. And Johnny's ego had finally had enough. He announced his retirement. He took his laurels, laurels which he deserved, and exited the late-night stage, leaving poor Ed McMahon with nothing more than a 
Big-ass publisher's clearinghouse checks to live on forever after. Johnny got rich and got a goddamn check made out of cardboard. But most importantly, Johnny's leaving cleared the stage for his successor to finally move into his rightful place as the king of the late night on the late night throne. Letterman, I just saw David Letterman walk by. Yeah, you would think that would be the person, wouldn't you? But uh, no. We'll find out the bitter truth next week in part three of Late Night with Dave Bledsoe, our 2024 Winter Series. That is it for the show this week and for part two of the Winter Series. I really wanted to talk more about Ed McMahon, but, uh, you know, that's the lot in life as a sidekick. Always the bride is made, never the host of your own show. And fuck Gavin. Next week, we will get into the meat of the series when I get to talk about my Johnny Carson, David Letterman. I'm so looking forward to getting into Dave's life and finding all the reasons why I shouldn't like him, just like I did with Johnny Carson. Speaking of finding reasons not to like someone, rate and review us wherever you get your pods. Donate to the Sidekick Appreciation Fund at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast so Gavin can eat this week. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing, otherwise he will be forced to cancel the segment where we have Joan Enbury from the San Diego Zoo come on with some cute baby animals. You have no idea how many jokes about tonight's show bits that I cut for time. And so for me, Dave, listen up close. I've got something to say, boys. I'm buying this round. Bledsoe, producer, you you were all overpaid, oversexed, and over here. Gavin and all the fictional cute little zoo animals on this show, we want to say, but when Johnny come lately comes marching home, he'll divorce his wife named Joan and then be a shitty dad to his kids. See, found a way to tie it all back into the song of the show. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Welcome to The Late Show with David Levin. Seltzer Kings. Podcast.